Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics. And it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you here today at the school to this evening's event with our honorable speaker, uh, Mario Monti, who will be speaking on the subject, Can National Politics Still Support International Integration? The Case for the EU, with a question mark, I note. This lecture is part of a series organized by the European Institute at the LSE. Uh, and at the start of every academic year, we invite a particularly distinguished public figure to launch the start of the series. Professor Mario Monti is currently president of Bocconi University, where he also studied as an undergraduate before going on to do graduate studies at Yale University. He played a key role in building the European single market, spending 10 years as a European commissioner, first for internal, the internal market, financial services and tax policy, and finally on competition, where he arguably built the single market, probably, I would think, the most powerful and popular achievement of the European Union. And that time at the commission earned him the moniker Super Mario, <laughs> a title which he occasionally has to share these days with Mario Draghi, but he had it first. <laughs> he is also incredibly well known for the time he spent as Italy's Prime Minister from, in two, from 2011 to 2013, where he steered Italy through an incredibly difficult time at the height of the Eurozone crisis. He restored Italy's credibility with financial markets and with fellow European partners, and his reforms of the pension system were particularly crucial for restoring fiscal stability. There are few who understand better how to navigate national politics to support international integration. I've also heard from one of his former students that he was a very good teacher. So we're, I'm sure we're all looking forward to a very engaging and uh, informative talk tonight. Before I invite him to speak to you, I just wanted to remind you that all LSE events are recorded and a podcast will be made available online. And please do turn your phones off to silent. And if you're tweeting, this event's hashtag is hashtag LSESU. And after Professor Monty completes his lecture, uh, there will be questions and answers and we'll have microphones uh, roving so that we can hear you. So I'd like to invite now Professor Monty to deliver his lecture, Can National Policies Support International Integration? It's a real emotion and a great pleasure to be here once again and uh, I'm very grateful to the London School of Economics, uh, to you, Madam Director, to the European Institute for this invitation, and uh, to these uh, two or three students who did show up. <laughs> uh, it's also a bit daring to have accepted to speak at the London School of Economics because, uh, well, this is the London School of Economics and Political Science, and uh, I once was an academic economist. I could hardly call me an economist uh, as you are becoming 
uh, now, and uh, I've never been a political scientist. Scientist, but I had to uh, do some things in the course of my life as if I were one or both uh, of these things. So I say this uh, as a sort of caveat because uh, you are not going to hear from me uh, structured um, systemic scholarly reflections, um, but rather a series of sometimes impressionistic, other times maybe not completely impressionistic uh, reflections drawn from uh, experience and uh, the observation of the experience of others. It is particularly interesting and uh, touching, in a sense, to take the floor in London these days. Uh, you made uh, reference, Madam Director, to my years spent uh, at uh, the Service of European Integration in Brussels and my responsibilities on the single market. It's uh, a real irony a very sad one, that uh, the British people decided democratically, totally legitimately, to uh, withdraw themselves from what has been one of the most uh, successful export products of the UK to Europe, the European single market. Because uh, you should remember that uh, the European single market is more than anything else the intellectual and political product of the British uh, leadership and uh, here the irony is compounded of the conservative British leadership, because uh, uh, it was uh, when uh, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was Prime Minister and when Lord Caulfield was her designated Commissioner for the Internal Market in the Delors Commission that uh, what was already a common market really started to become a serious single market. And I always considered myself uh, as uh, a peculiar Italian uh, taking for some reason so much interest uh, in uh, opening up markets uh, and building a European single market and keeping it open to competition. I always considered myself uh, uh, as trying to work in the British tradition and under British inspiration. Not that I agreed with all aspects of the policies pursued by the successive British governments, but on this fundamental aspect of uh, the structure uh, of the economy, I, I really felt uh, very much so. It now comes to my mind, as a matter of fact, that uh, 
the first uh, timid visit I paid in 1995 to London as European Commissioner for the Internal Market, I asked and easily obtained to be able to meet with Lord Caulfield, who was really not a young man. Mm-hmm. And I remember a meeting at, uh, at the representative office of uh, the European Commission here in London, um, and he gave me some advice on how to deal with uh, uh, Britain, and that will remain confidential. Why do I propose such a strange and roundabout title for this collective conversation? Can national politics still support international integration, the case of the EU? Well, because it has been precisely working on the ground of European integration and working through moments of crisis of European integration that I have come to the conviction that uh, the the state, the mood, the condition of national politics uh, is much more important than the surface of European institutions in determining whether European integration moves ahead or goes back. I remember in particular some experiences like uh, the... The, the nose to the referenda in, uh, uh, on successive occasions in Ireland, in Denmark, uh, in, uh, in France uh, and, and uh, the Netherlands in 2005 that was on the, the referendum on the, constitutional, on the draft constitutional treaty. And uh, whenever there was a setback, obviously, for European integration, and a no in a referendum is a setback, Uh, you cannot imagine the vigorous process of uh, strenuous self-flagellation that is set in motion among the leadership and the members of the the EU institutions, which which is a a wise and a a good moral attitude to uh, keep, but in my view, risked many times of uh, uh, having misjudgments in us on what were the roots of the crisis of the day of European integration. And the the self-flagellation immediately brought us collectively in the Commission, but also in the Parliament, etc., to saying we must improve our communication policy, which was is today and probably will remain true forever uh, as, as a need. Uh, and what uh, captured my reflection in particular was the view of many of my colleagues, commissioners. I should warn you, I was uh, the, practically the only one in the commission to have come to that job without a, a, a prior Uh, political affiliation and political responsibility in one of the member states. 
So I was a bit an, like an entomologist, and uh, observing these real politicians, uh, I was impressed by their saying, "Of oh, our citizens show up uh, little, uh, not so numerous to the European Parliament elections, vote no on this or that referendum. The problem is that uh, they do not recognize themselves in the uh, more vibrant uh, and, and virulent uh, and sanguine uh, politics that goes on and at the national level. So let's try to make the politics of the EU level as similar as possible to that of the member states. Then people will become passionate, will understand Europe, will, will even perhaps love Europe. I was never convinced of this. Of course, uh, there were and there are numerous things on which uh, the EU uh, has to improve, and over the years many improvements, but by definition always insufficient have been introduced. But to me, the opposite was true, namely the main problems of European integration were generated by dysfunctions of the political process in member states. And then it happened to me to reinforce this conviction when, again, as an outlier, not being a, a, a real professional politician, it happened to me that I became a member of the European Council as Prime Minister of Italy for a while. And I was surrounded by the real politicians of Europe. And I was really uh, impressed by their way of behaving. Uh, very skillful, uh, professional in the political sense of the world. Uh, but of course, uh, even though we had to deal with, uh, and in many cases we did so successfully with a huge crisis like <laughs> You saw many of them, Madam Director, from, from your slightly more detached and yet deeply involved uh, position in Washington, like the Greek crisis, etc. Um, uh, but that uh, reaffirmed, in my perception, the idea that, yes, 28, it was at the time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, go to a, an august table once every two months, the European Council. They sit down, they take decisions in the interest of Europe, one would imagine. Uh, but uh, in most cases and in most uh, instances, uh, they have their mind, their eyes, their ears focused on their domestic political landscape. And uh, it would be uh, therefore a bit uh, unrealistic to believe that they really act uh, in the general interest of Europe. Okay, one can say they may act uh, having in mind their own national interest. 
That would be already a rather noble version of what uh, sometimes happens. Because uh, many times they are understandably conditioned by their party interests or the interest of their government coalition. Some other times, and this borders to me much more with the unacceptable, with their own personal political interest. So, uh, obviously from this uh, uh, distortion of the prism, uh, you have uh, uh, a flow of decision-making at the EU level that may, on occasions, it's not excluded a priori, coincide with the general interest of Europe, but it's uh, not necessarily always the case. Now, uh, in, uh, against this background, uh, I have been reflecting more and more on why uh, international integration, not just in Europe, has been uh, going through setbacks uh, in the last uh, 10 years at least, maybe even more. It's not just in Europe because, uh, I will come to Europe in a moment, but uh, uh, internationally the, the peak days of international integration are over. If you look at the WTO figures in terms of uh, trade agreements, etc., uh, etc., et the, the peak uh, is, is over. If you look at uh, the references to the national interest in the actual economic uh, or industrial policy decisions of countries and not only in Europe, uh, that is more and more a reflex to take that into account. Uh, of course, last year we were all watching uh, uh, with uh, acute attention and a lot of concern to the Brexit debate in this country. But if we just for a second looked elsewhere, we were seeing that, uh, for example, in the US, the two main candidates for the presidential election had only one thing in common, and that was uh, the fact of being uh, not really warm on international uh, trade or international openness. And then one of them eventually won and uh, started with the uh, not so obvious statement, America first, from which I believe we should uh, uh, draw a couple of uh, point of reflections. One, uh, of course, if uh, every leader in every country, as uh, the president says would be appropriate, pursues the national interest, uh, well, there may be a fallacy of composition sometimes, uh, perhaps ending in wars. But the other thing which I think is helpful for us in Europe uh, is that he said uh, America first, uh, not uh, uh, Pennsylvania first uh, or uh, 
uh, or uh, Idaho first. Uh, and so it would be a real good progress in, it, in, in Europe if we, if we had our uh, nationally minded leaders uh, say Europe first. At any rate, uh, why uh, is it that uh, something in inherent in the political process has over time eroded the support for international integration. I think it, is, it has to do with several factors, but in particular with the increasing short-termism of the political process, uh, the uh, importance of being uh, elected, the importance of being re-elected, but now the election, even if it takes place in, in one year, is, is the remote future. But you have, when you are in Brussels and take part in the European Council, Council in a collective pro-European decision-making, uh, supposedly, you have in mind the, the public opinion polls in your country next week, which may determine your strength in the government coalition, for example. So this acute short-termism, which uh, uh, makes it less and less politically uh, viable to uh, invest in the future. Uh, and uh, um, so this uh, leads... Uh, sorry, it's not only that, but it is... Uh, the, the, the short-termism, not uh, only in the sense of the time horizon, but also in the sense of the framework of the debate, of the political discourse. The 140 characters of a tweet uh, do not necessarily facilitate deep reflection bent on the long term, um, or the... 10 seconds TV spot uh, through which you may win or lose uh, uh, elections. And obviously, uh, this introduces a bias, in my view, in favor of the nationalist and populist uh, slogans, which are, uh, which can be pronounced in five or 10 seconds, whereas if you uh, have to counter your opponent who says, uh, uh, we have a lot of youth unemployment. Let, let's close our borders to foreign products. Apparently seducive at first sight. Uh, but if you want to show that, yes, but on the face of it, if you look at economic history, you find that countries which uh, close themselves uh, uh, then afterwards experience declines uh, and what would be the reaction of the others to protectionist measures, it's at least two minutes if you are an excellent communicator and you have lost. <laughs> so uh, to, to use an architectural uh, image, uh, I consider the national leaders uh, of, of the past going to Brussels as bringing each time a brick for the European construction in the awareness, in the belief at least, that by and large a strengthening of that construction was also in their national interest. More recently, 
each time they go, they desperately try to take a brick from the construction and to magically transform it into a powder from which they hope to extract domestic political consensus. So it's not very easy to imagine that the construction can go on. So uh, this was the mood in which I personally started to address this issue and to give uh, speeches and to write articles on the likely process of European disintegration. Um, then came uh, the uh, decision of my one-time friend and colleague David Cameron, a wonderful personality and a very constructive member of the European Council to hold uh, a referendum. Um, with uh, what uh, happened afterwards. Now, uh, what he did in that, I think we can now see that uh, clearly and lucidly, was only to do the same game of uh, the average other national leader, uh, only to the utmost degree. Uh, because the decision to call that referendum totally legitimate was uh, not probably in the, done in the general interest of Europe. Was it in the national interest of the UK? Many people doubted before and doubt even more now. Was it at least in the general interest of the Conservative Party? No. Not quite. There is by now the, the uh, shared diagnosis that uh, that was done. Uh, it was a brave move, the objective of uh, uh, which was to try and reinforce Mr. Cameron's uh, position in the control of that rather difficult party on European matters. Now, uh, It, uh, it was therefore like a, a, a laboratory experiment. And uh, once Brexit was decided by the British electors, one could, uh, uh, could uh, expect and fear, uh, so did I for a while, uh, a contagion effect uh, to spread around uh, most European countries. Um, and I was really concerned uh, until, uh, well, the, the, end of, the end of last year, more or less. Now, and I will uh, say a word on yesterday's elections in Germany, in spite of that, I think that overall we can say that uh, the, um, the contagion effect out of Brexit has not materialized, and if anything, an antibody effect has been developing. Why? Well, uh, already 72 hours after the Brexit vote, 
the Spaniards were called to their uh, national political elections. Their populist nationalist party did much less well than expected, and many observers attribute this to the immediate sense of disarray that we all got from the UK in the hours following the result of the Brexit referendum, where not only those who uh, had wanted the referendum maintaining they were in favor of staying in the Union, but also those who won the referendum because they wanted to exit, and everybody else, like in a domino effect, uh, there was no more any uh, political leader in the UK in a matter of a few hours that had not resigned for different reasons. And all of a sudden, but very quickly, it was discovered that uh, uh, th there wasn't uh, much of a deep analysis on what the consequences would be, let alone on how to um, embark in a negotiations. Uh, and so pretty soon the others felt uh, that uh, it would have been uh, uh, a bit hazardous to go down uh, to the same, uh, in, in the same uh, road. So the fact remains that where there were elections, the results were more in favor of European integration than it was expected. That was, uh, uh, after Spain, the case of uh, uh, the Austrian presidential elections on December the 4th of last year, I will say a word on whether or not what happened in Italy on that same day, the 4th of December, uh, that is the negative result in the constitutional referendum can be inscribed on or, or not in the antidote. I know that the students of LSE were sharply divided, those taking an interest in Italian affairs about what to hope for. Um, well, I will simply say that in my view, uh, it wasn't true at all that that was going to be a defining moment uh, uh, in the case of a no uh, with the risk that the financial markets would be upset. And uh, I was always convinced before and after the event, uh, so the negative result in the referendum, that uh, it would have been very, very uh, inappropriate to draw, as many did uh, outside Italy, the conclusion that on the 4th of December of last year, in Austria, the populists were defeated whereas they were the winners in Italy, as if uh, the nationalists, the anti-Europeans, and uh, the populists had uh, won, and, and uh, as if the no position in the referendum w were uh, uh, driven by them. I, for one, uh, voted uh, no, uh, and I do not uh, believe that I have become anti-European, populist, and, and nationalist for that. And, and the financial markets uh, 
had this no and they couldn't care less in terms of uh, impact. Um, so I, I, I see also Italy as, as affected in that case by many other considerations, but difficult to inscribe in a populist or anti-populist uh, trend. Then came the, the Netherlands in, uh, in March, where Mr. Wilders did have an impressive result, but less impressive than than was generally uh, believed uh, to be the case. Then, of course, came the uh, French election, which were notable because of the head-on position and, and hands-on position taken by uh, candidate uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, challenging openly Marine Le Pen and, and her party on uh, the European positions, and there we had somebody uh, who uh, was elected uh, with a strong pro-EU uh, platform. Uh, then uh, what else? Uh, well, then we came to the, uh, to the German elections, and then we will have, I believe, on the uh, 18th of, uh, of October, the the Austrian uh, parliament elections, then uh, one day I promise you that also Italians will go, <laughs> will go to vote. Maybe in the Q&A period, uh, if somebody has this insane uh, uh, interest, we could chat a bit on that. Um, uh, and and now, now the, the, the... And then, of course, we will... Uh, move towards the European elections in 2019. Now, uh, the, uh, what, what uh, we saw uh, has been over this cycle that uh, the, the electors have become more, less instinctively reluctant to the EU than many of us thought likely. Uh, but that is for the places where there have been elections. But if we look at the public opinion polls, Eurobarometers, Bertelsmann, etc., we see that uh, the public opinion at large, as uh, uh, measured by these polls, has also been taken by an antibody effect more than by a contagion effect. Because in all member states with one exception, Italy, uh, post-Brexit vote, the degree of favor for the Euro, the European Union, has actually increased, not declined. And as to the top level, so I spoke of the electorate, I spoke of the public opinion at large, and at the level of the governments and the heads of the governments, watching from outside, I have the impression that they have become more cautious in playing with the EU uh, for purely domestic political purposes, because the experience of David Cameron was, of course, uh, uh, very close to them and has been observed with uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, consequences uh, uh, drone. This uh, 
does not allow us to say, in my view, that now, all of a sudden, after this uh, um, uh, exciting year that our British friends uh, um, granted to us, uh, now national politics can, yes, of course, again, fully support international integration in the EU, and that's where far from it, far from it. But I think that at least there has been, um, I couldn't say a learning process, uh, otherwise I would not be neutral, but at any rate you know that I'm not neutral on European affairs. <laughs> there has been uh, a, a, a capacity to reflect and to react on phenomena, which I think is a very uh, positive and encouraging uh, uh, signal. Uh, particularly at a time uh, when uh, the European Union, or what will remain of it, uh, has uh, completely changed uh, its positioning in the world, not so much because it is changing or it has changed, but because everything else around it is changing, and uh, we have a more, let's say, um, assertive, uh, Russia and Turkey than we used to have. We have uh, a, a puzzling uh, uh, island across the uh, English Channel uh, with whom we have some difficulties in negotiating and even greater difficulties in understanding what uh, its ultimate identity will be. And we have across the Atlantic uh, somebody who by the way, this also is interesting. <laughs> you may remember that uh, once uh, he took office, President Trump uh, set out uh, rather vigorously with uh, the idea of uh, favoring some disintegration of the European Union. You may remember his tactful invitation to, to Mr. Farage, to Mr. Orban, some uh, some uh, language that uh, he used, and uh, it appeared that he wanted to send to Brussels a, a professor who said, well, previously under a president many years ago, I was involved in the deconstruction of the Soviet Union. That was at the time of uh, President Reagan, who, of course, with uh, the cooperation of the Europeans, uh, acted a lot to uh, disintegrate uh, the Soviet Union, whether we should be happy or not of the final outcome, it's open to historians, but that was the case. And that uh, um, brave gentleman was saying, now it's time to have another operation of this sort, this time trying to disintegrate the uh, European uh, Union. Um, now, so far, it does not seem to, to have been the case that uh, the attitude of President Trump uh, has uh, been successful in this respect. And if one were to be cynical, even in a context of, this is at least my case, continuing, never-ending, profound admiration for the US and their people and their traditions, one could ask the questions, but is he, 
is it proceeding faster in disintegrating the EU or in disintegrating the United States? <laughs> because I, I, I'm not joking. If you, if you consider the uh, re-emergence of uh, ethnic identities in uh, a rather uh, vigorous uh, and violent way, the all of a sudden problem that citizens have with monuments and statues uh, uh, of the past, uh, the, uh, the almost complete uh, separation that has now occurred between the thinking of the business community and the thinking of the administration, uh, which uh, had never occurred before, the, uh, the signing up of many states of the United States for positions in the area of climate change, which are opposite to the ones maintained now by the Washington administration, one can really ask the question. At any rate, uh, it's, uh, it's really a, a very interesting, uh, uh, and here I am in pure impressionism, as you will have understood, um, a very interesting uh, picture of the elements which are playing uh, currently in favor of, uh, again, a national support of international integration or in the opposite direction. I will conclude with uh, a word on... Uh, uh, with two words. One on uh, the Anglo-Saxons. I've always uh, thought and spoken with profound uh, convinced reverence and deference of the Anglo-Saxons uh, in the sense basically of the UK and the US. And I have seen the developments in many of our continental European countries over the last several decades as a process of, as an effort to uh, take on, to follow some of the uh, elements of success of the Anglo-Saxon countries in bringing rationality to public policy decision-making. Uh, as an economist, I've always been impressed, uh, for example, by the seamless process of ideas. Well, first of all, they have in the US and very much so in the UK, the best universities in the world, and of course, we are in one of them. Uh, but also the way in which uh, the analysis, the theory, the empirical work through think tanks has uh, been uh, uh, transfused into the process of decision-making by the high public administration, by the politicians, in, in, in Parliament, uh, in government, uh, in the UK and in the US, has been a reason for constant admiration by many, many of us, and I think we have all made an effort to come closer to that. And then 
but this is really for the, the historians, unless it is dismissed uh, prima facie. What happened in 2016? Is it possible that, uh, as a coincidence in the same historical moment, the two uh, bastions of Anglo-Saxon uh, strength turn the page and give at least to us modest uh, uh, continental European observers <laughs> the impression of uh, them imitating us in our worst <laughs> aspects but doing remarkably better than us. <laughs> And uh, the, the, I mean, if, if I take uh, the UK, all of a sudden we saw the most skillful uh, and, and uh, shrewd and competent uh, administration, public administration that there is in Europe, with a few others, to seem to be completely lost. The link between the administration and the political decision makers to become totally confused. The link between the business community, manufacturing and the financial community even, and the political decision makers, which had always been a great strength of this country in shaping the European policies, disappeared. Uh, in the U.S., I will not uh, uh, do, uh, well, I was visiting with my family uh, parts of the U.S. in August, and the uh, disrespectful I, observation came to my mind, visiting the beautiful, impressive monument valley, that at least they have a huge space where they can put all the statues that will be <laughs> recused in this uh, historical reconsideration. And I apologize for this uh, light uh, uh, tonality, but uh, these problems, I think, are very shocking and very, and very serious. So, and is it possible that all of a sudden our uh, heavy, um, non, uh, not, not uh, modernized, uh, not sufficiently modernized uh, continental Europe becomes an island of, uh, an island, yes, of, of rationality. This, this cannot be. But one could even think that this is happening. And uh, and we, you have the president of France taking on some world leadership in the assertion of certain values. You have uh, the chancellor of Germany uh, in dialogue with, uh, of, all, of all possible things, uh, the president of the People's Republic of China on how to best promote free, free trade and multilateralism. Uh, I am disconcerted. I think uh, we should not uh, now fall victims of uh, an illusion and uh, continental Europe 
has so many problems and the absence of the UK from that table will uh, aggravate some of these problems but still uh, in, in terms of the relationship between national politics and uh, the positioning of countries in international integration uh, I think uh, 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 you who are well equipped with all the analytical tools uh, of economics and political science should uh, give us the answers. Very, very last word on, uh, on, on Germany. It's, uh, it's a very difficult case to, to, to analyze. Uh, I believe that, uh, um, that uh, the uh, impressive result of the uh, AFD, which uh, should not uh, uh, lead us to forget the very impressive result of a lady who has been, probably will become Chancellor for the fourth time, a real anchor of stability in Europe, but uh, how to assess from the point of view of uh, the consequences on the process of European integration this development in German national politics. Well, my first impression is that uh, there are some aspects in which uh, the AFD will uh, side with, will compound their effects with the other nationalists and populists that we have around Europe. That is uh, on the uh, migration, asylum, uh, and, and these things, and, and, and very dangerously on the... Um, uh, localism uh, to the extreme, etc. But there is another aspect uh, in which, in my view, we are going to see a powerful clash between some nationalists, the German ones, and some others, in particular those of southern countries. And uh, the dividing line is the euro. Why? Because the euro is at the origin of the foundation of AFD. There were some old, very conservative uh, professors in Germany, those who bring complaints to the Constitutional Court in Germany, to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg against uh, the euro, the ECB, etc., they love the currency that is no longer there, the Deutsche Mark. They were against the creation of the euro. But in that, uh, they were representative of a much wider German audience. For example, the, the, the followers of Madame Le Pen in France uh, hardly remember, probably they were not born, they, they, they don't know that it, it has never been Germany who wanted the, the single currency, the euro. It was France and it was Italy. It was those countries who did not want a reunified Germany to be the exclusive country, the only country with a strong currency. But for the Germans, it was very hard to digest. And one predecessor of Chancellor Merkel, Helmut Kohl, 
lost the elections in 1998 because his opponent, Gerhard Schröder, was at the time against the euro and he caught this popular sentiment. But as a real leader, uh, Chancellor Kohl lost power but entered into European history because the euro was eventually adopted. Like, maybe, might have happened to Chancellor Merkel if she had lost this election because that would most probably have been the result of her leadership on the refugees one year, uh, two years ago, that was way ahead of what uh, the uh, sen sensitivity in her country could, uh, uh, could accept. Uh, but I think uh, it's good for Europe that she has not lost uh, this one. At any rate, uh, the, uh, the, the, there will be a, 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 a positioning uh, when it comes to, to the euro and the policies surrounding the euro. For example, I would not expect the AFD to be in favor, or even the liberals, uh, if they enter the, co the, the coalition, to be strong supporters of uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron's and Italian ideas on the um, finance minister for the Eurozone or the fiscal capacity for the Eurozone um, uh, or for a, a, a great uh, dilution of the degree of uh, fiscal uh, discipline in uh, Europe. So, and this will be interesting to follow but to AFD, the euro has been and is a dangerous vehicle for pollution by the others. Of course, they don't know that it was not Greece, but it was Germany and France that first violated the stability pact in 2003. Uh, but they believe that they are poisoned by the southerners through the euro. But of course, uh, the populists and the nationalists in Greece, in Italy, in, in Spain, in France, are convinced that the euro is the Machiavellian uh, instrument uh, through which Germany wanted and is successfully pursuing a policy of domination and exploitation over the rest of Europe. So we may see there a clash among nationalists and populists, which uh, we should fear, but I think if the nationalists uh, were to uh, win everywhere, first they would uh, behave as friends because the common enemy, uh, the EU, Brussels, the Eurocrats, uh, would have been defeated but uh, once finished uh, that uh, purification of Europe, they would uh, turn their flags against uh, each other, as it has always been in the history of Europe, except for this uh, curious, exceptional period of uh, 70 and more years of peace due to the European integration, which I think we have the duty to follow with great attention and care, uh, starting at its 
roots, that is the developments in national politics. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you for that wonderful uh, kind of analysis and explanation of the current turmoil in all of our political lives. Um, I'll open it up for questions now. We've got uh, stewards with mics. Uh, please introduce yourself, uh, and uh, I think we'll take groups of three questions at a time, and maybe while you're thinking of your questions, I'll start with one myself, if I may. Um, you talked about the, the decline in the Anglo-Saxon tradition of rationality in 2016 and, and the demise of that and what, what is behind it. And I suspect a part of it is around the legacy of the financial crisis and the, the sense that the losers from globalization and integration weren't looked after enough by those advocating greater integration. And I, I wonder, some people now, people like, say, Larry Summers, for example, are arguing that we need what he calls responsible nationalism, that uh, those who are in policymaking roles need to take greater account, for example, in negotiating a trade deal to make sure that there's sufficient adjustment mechanisms for those workers likely to suffer as a result of liberalization, or before advocating more labor mobility or having higher levels of immigration, to take into account whether the, the social infrastructure is there to absorb higher levels of immigration. So this kind of accept that the nationalists have a point, but try and continue integration with a more responsible face. Do you think that's a legitimate argument that somehow the integrationists got ahead of the losers in some sense? May I now? Yes, please. Uh, I definitely believe so. And uh, um, I believe in particular that, uh, well, this is the case uh, to me as far as global integration is concerned and as far as European integration is concerned. Uh, and that to me is not just the product of the financial crisis, but came before even. Because if we look, uh, uh, for example, uh, at the no vote in France in 2005, that is before the financial and economic and social crisis. And yet, you will remember the syndrome against the Polish plumber. It was the rejection of integration uh, at, uh, at the social level associated with fears which were probably largely unjustified, but that was there. Uh, and I am convinced, like Larry Summers, that uh, uh, it has been uh, irresponsible, uh, not only from the point of view of the general interest, but also from the point of view of the interest of pursuing integration and globalization, not to take care of the social consequences. For example, and this is the one point on which I disagreed when I was in office in Brussels uh, with, um, uh, well, with, uh, with Blair and then Brown, uh, that is, uh, uh, I believe that if we want the single market 
to go ahead, to become deeper, to involve aspects like the digital or the professions or energy that are not yet really single. Uh, we cannot expect that to come simply through conviction because people have come to associate with the European single market uh, the um, um, a, a bias against labor and in favor of capital, mm. uh, which, uh, which is true because if you have um, in a system of integrated markets uh, uh, mobility of uh, goods, services, uh, uh, people, uh, mobility of everything, um, then if, if you stick to tax competition because you don't want to, to harmonize or to make some progress at least on some tax coordination, then the consequence, and this can be shown analytically and can be seen empirically, the consequence is that the tax competition does not have uh, the, uh, the good consequence that uh, the pro-market people would like to see, namely that uh, it destroys a cartel of the states and all countries are forced to bring tax pressure down. It may have that in part as an effect, but it has above all the, the effect of distorting the structure of taxation because uh, tax competition will benefit uh, uh, most uh, to those uh, uh, tax bases which are more mobile, like capital, like uh, selecting the location of your company, whereas labor, and in particular unskilled labor, who doesn't have mobility until it makes the drastic decision of migrating, uh, is left there under the uh, increasing, increasing tax pressure because member states have to compensate the loss of revenue due to this uh, competition uh, with higher uh, uh, taxation on, uh, on labor. <coughs> and uh, to some extent, I see the, the result of Brexit as a vindication against the prevailing British doctrine that the single market, forget the people component, but the single market has virtues of itself that does not need accompanying policies to entice the support of people for the single market. Uh, so I totally agree with, uh, with Larry Summers. I wouldn't call it responsible nationalism. I would call it uh, responsible integration, responsible globalization, not nationalism. Okay. Let me open it to the floor. I'll start. Why don't I start at the top? There's two gentlemen there, and there's one here. And if you could introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm a student here at SC. I'm from Italy. And first of all, I would like to thank you very much for coming. It's been amazing to talk about this. 
Um, so I just wanted to ask, there's been talk of a more profound implementation of the idea of a multi-speed Europe, where different nations uh, would be, where different treatment would be reserved for different nations according to their gross domestic product or their political situation. Um, so in your, in your opinion, do you think that this will facilitate international integration, especially among those Eastern European countries such as Hungary or Poland, which have turned out to be a bit more receptive in the past, and also will this type of integration also help take the populist threat in even more advanced economies such as Italy or Germany and France, as we have seen? Okay. Gentleman next to him, yes, right there. Carlo Mancarelli, LSE European Institute. Uh, also, thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. Uh, so my question relates to this one. So um, yeah, one of the of the questions that we have is that, of course, now that the British claim against further integration has been dismissed by the referendum, the outcome of the referendum, probably the EU should offer you know, an alternative model of integration. Could you speak a bit louder? Sorry. Sorry. Yes. So the EU should um, provide an alternative model of integration now that the, uh, the claims of against integration have been dismissed with the, with the outcome of the referendum, particularly for countries such as Poland, indeed Sweden and Norway, uh, do you think that this model of further integration could take the uh, shape of what has been envisaged by the uh, five president report? So are you in favor of the, of, you know, of the project uh, devised by the five president report at all? Okay. And then one here, and then I'll return to Professor Monti. Thanks. Hi, my name is Sebastian Wiesner. I'm also in the LSE European Institute. Um, it's also a question on what you speak Europe. Um, and actually, I will allow myself to answer it because I asked you that question also the last time you came to. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Even if you didn't, I wouldn't be mad. Um, back then, you, um, you told us that um, more or less that multi-speed Europe is already a reality and you shouldn't be afraid of it. But I wonder maybe if your thinking has changed. Um, just the other week we had the State of the Union speech by Jean-Claude Juncker, who, uh, yeah, yeah, by Jean-Claude Juncker, who was really very dismissive of that idea and rather claiming that we should have a one-speed Europe where all members join the Euro, who have a stronger commission, etc. So I guess I'll just echo the questions in the sense that in a post-Brexit world should Okay. All right. Three very similar questions. So. Shall I? Yes, please. Uh, yes. Yes, as I said uh, on the last occasion, I came here. <laughs> but of course, n minus one will not remember. <laughs> Uh, Multispeed Europe is there already, uh, has been there since, uh, since the beginning, uh, and I believe that it is not necessarily harmful. I believe that it is a pragmatic, I would have said that traditionally an Anglo-Saxon uh, <laughs> way of uh, proceeding. Uh, we have Schengen, we have the single currency, not for everybody. Um, now, There are cases, though, where I believe that multi-speed Europe can uh, resemble a suicide. Uh, and, for example, taking uh, again the case of tax competition or tax coordination, uh, if uh, 
some countries want to have the greater emotion of seeing among themselves a higher degree of integration and therefore uh, adopt, for example, a common tax rate on corporate taxation, uh, that is indeed a step forward in their integration, but is, is at the same time a gift to, the, to those outside uh, of, of that circle of integration to the extent that the common, the common rate of taxation adopted by the ones in would be higher than uh, the, the, the other ones. Uh, so there are, there are cases, uh, uh, I mean, for example, uh, it was just after the decision of uh, the Competition Commissioner Margaret Vestager last year uh, on, uh, on the Apple case, uh, which was, by the way, not at all a fine, as many people believed, in the state aid area, the Commission does not uh, fine. In that case, the Commission ordered the Government of Ireland to ask uh, Apple to give it, not to the coffers of the EU, 13 billion euros of unpaid taxes. Um, the uh, so this, this area of taxation <coughs> is one where, um, no, sorry, sorry, um, I, I come back to the point. L last year, just, uh, just the, 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 there was this uh, decision on Apple and, uh, and Ireland, and uh, the, the British Prime Minister, uh, I think it was already Theresa May, said, uh, uh, okay, uh, come to the UK, big multinationals, uh, don't go to Ireland. If you come to the UK, we, you will not be exposed to these risks because we will no longer be under the taxation policy of the EU or the state aid rules of the EU. But of course, we will still be in the single market and therefore, <laughs> so that, that if the EU were to accept this, it would be um, a dangerous form on, uh, well, uh, the fact that Mr. Juncker, as president of the Commission, uh, has a bias in favor of uh, not multi-speed, but all maximum speed, if possible, integration, is understandable. I think he does his institutional, uh, his institutional job, and it is, and he also has the duty to uh, apply the law, to enforce the law. And under the uh, European law, uh, it was only uh, UK, under the treaties. It was only the UK and uh, Denmark, if I remember well, who had uh, an opt-out. Uh, as to the five present reports, uh, uh, I think uh, that uh, I would slightly differ from them. Uh, in particular, they, they see very much the institutional progress, like the, 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 uh, the, the finance minister for the EU, etc. Uh, I believe, if we had time to discuss this topic, which we don't, I believe that now 
more, it's more urgent to proceed to some substantive policy changes, for example, under a Macron-Merkel initiative with others. It would be more important to uh, come to an agreement that some change is introduced into the Stability Pact to favor public investments and get, get rid of all the array of flexibilities that pollute the notion of fiscal discipline rather than trying to set up now a finance, uh, a finance minister. Okay. I'm going to open it up here. One back there, one here, and one here. <laughs> Maybe hold it closer. Maybe I'll turn to – why don't you ask your question and then we'll get the mic to you. Could those who take the floor stand, please, so that I uh, – okay, thank you. Thank you for your lecture. My name is Federico, and I am a master's student at the European Institute. Um, as a fellow Italian, my question is rather predictable. What is your view on the upcoming national election, and what impact do you think they could potentially have on the country's position on European and further international cooperation, if at all? Okay, there was one here. Yeah. Maybe just and then I'll come back to you in the back. Hi, uh, my name is Maureen and I'm a student here at LSE and I wanted to ask um, what do you think about the rise of so-called illiberal democracies in the EU such as Hungary and Poland? Like they don't explicitly want to leave the EU but they're very hostile to EU values. Um, so what do you think? the On the media, I don't have enough competence, but I believe this is a, an absolutely central uh, issue. Um, I don't believe that we can regulate the contents of the media uh, if we don't want to be listed with um, Hungary and Poland under the previous question. Uh, but I believe that uh, the social media have indeed uh, brought to the exasperation, to the ex extremes. Uh, uh, many, many have shown this effect of, uh, of polarizing the views, uh, of uh, making uh, the notion of truth uh, uh, highly volatile, uh, if not uh, uh, no longer existent. Um, but uh, even without these uh, phenomena, as I said earlier on, the, uh, the style of the debate in the media today uh, is uh, 
is such uh, as to introduce a bias of contents as to the different political positions. Um, I, I cannot be more constructive, I'm sorry, but uh, certainly this is, uh, this is a big problem. On the illiberal democracies, I think that, uh, I mean, I was against, uh, although I was a modest commissioner, so it was not for me to judge uh, what President Chirac uh, said uh, or wanted to do when uh, Austrian Chancellor Schussel introduced Mr. Haider in the, in, uh, in the government. You remember the the nationalist uh, and populist leader, one of the earliest one, once uh, France had uh, the intention to activate Article 7 of the treaty bringing to expulsion. Other countries moderated uh, Chirac and I think uh, it, was, uh, it was well to do so. But uh, because one needs to judge on the uh, actual behavior, not on the presumption. I've not followed the Hungarian and the Polish uh, situation uh, closely, but uh, it seems to me that uh, the case could be, could be made that uh, there is behavior that puts in question the respect of, uh, of, uh, of the division of power and of the principles of, uh, of, it, of, uh, of liberal democracies. Uh, I think uh, the EU, uh, if there were cases like that, it's not for me to judge whether they incur now in this situation or not, uh, should not hesitate uh, and, uh, and should consider also temporary suspensions, uh, sanctions, uh, expulsions, uh, extrema ratio, because uh, uh, this is a fundamental aspect of our, of our coexistence. On the Italian elections, <coughs> from my biased pro-European perspective, I think it was uh, an excellent idea not to accede to the pressures to have early elections uh, just after the result of the referendum, like early elections in uh, January, February or, or March of 2017. Why I think that, well, first of all, because I think that uh, uh, Normally, parliaments should last until until their last day. Um, but also, if Italy had uh, had elections at that point, I believe that uh, the uh, I'm biased here. I declare that the nationalists and the populist movements would have found themselves in a stronger position than they will be in. Uh, by the day next February or March when there are the normal elections. Why? Because we hadn't seen yet uh, this uh, 
rather virtuous net of this AFD result in Germany circle of regaining confidence in the process of European integration. So I believe that especially if with all the difficulties that Mrs. Merkel will face in forming a new coalition and a new government, but if the German-Franco duo produces a proposal of revamping European integration that is, of course, open and uh, attractive to others, uh, the public opinion in Italy by then will uh, value the uh, proposal to leave the euro or even to leave the EU as uh, very risky, problematic and unjustified, more than it would have been the case months ago. Of course, I, uh, I, I know that also in the financial markets, but also in the, in the diplomatic and political world, there are concerns because of the very good performance in the polls of uh, two of these uh, <coughs> um, political parties, the, the Northern League and the Five Star Movement. Um, as far as the EU is concerned, uh, I must say that they have put recently a lot of water in their wine of uh, anti-EU. Anti uh, probably because they have seen that in other countries that was not necessarily a recipe for success. Uh, maybe also because as the elections uh, uh, approach, they take also the temperature with the, with the business community in Italy, and they can probably see what uh, problematic consequences would be there uh, if Italy were where to decide to reduce its degree of integration in the EU. Uh, so, um, and, and uh, also an element of, of reassurance uh, um, concerning the prospects after the elections is that uh, it seems very difficult that uh, I mean, it seems very likely that there will be a hung parliament. I know that uh, in some countries, particularly in this one, a hung parliament is, uh, is an awful uh, event and outcome. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a proposition of general validity. Uh, why? because uh, a hung parliament uh, forces that country to build a broader coalition. A broader coalition at difficult uh, times like the present ones for all countries which need reforms to adjust to globalization, etc. Um, a broader coalition is, in my view, better equipped to bear the high political cost of reforms than uh, uh, what traditionally we consider a stronger political system with a center-left or a center-right clear majority. If I can bring uh, the modest uh, experience of my government, 
that was a hung parliament because the majority of Prime Minister Berlusconi in 2011 evaporated. He lost the majority. He wasn't able to take any incisive measure, let alone the pension reform, uh, which was required by all means in those days. And so he resigned. Uh, so the, the parliament became hung. There were n not new elections at the time, but there was no longer a majority. I was asked uh, to come in and uh, uh, it would have been impossible to extract from the Italian parliament, from the Italian political system, bold measures without a hung parliament and without what was in fact uh, a grand coalition because uh, uh, we had uh, two main components in the majority through which uh, uh, the different proposals of the government uh, were approved in Parliament, and uh, the unwilling partners of this uh, exposed very harmonious coalition in the measures that it took were Mr. Berlusconi and Mr. Bersani. So two persons who hadn't been speaking to each other, f to each other for years. So it was cumbersome to uh, run that majority because I had to duplicate the meetings because I could not call them to a majority meeting. Um, but, uh, but it worked uh, in terms of taking the, the measures. And, uh, the, uh, and I think it can be formalized in a model because uh, Reforms uh, bring unpopularity. Uh, unpopularity brings political cost for, for the parties who support the reform. But what matters, this was my argument uh, um, to those gentlemen who were like this, hearing this argument, Berlusconi and Bersani. I said, what should matter to you is not the political cost that you, Mr. Bersani, leader of the left, will unquestionably have to bear because of the pension reform. What matters, what should matter to you in view of the next elections is that political, that gross political cost to you relative to your constituencies minus the political cost that I will have to impose to the center-right with uh, some uh, wealth tax, much stronger instruments uh, against uh, tax evasion, etc. Et they too are going to lose votes because of these unpopular measures to them. But what matters to each of you is your net political cost. I'm not sure they fully understood, but they, <laughs> they, they behaved as they did. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on, how the real politics of managing economic reforms. Um, thank you, Mario Monti, for being a, uh, for your defense of rationality and policymaking.
for your case for responsible internationalism, for being a, pragmat a pragmatist in the European political sphere, and for the wisdom of true experience in economic reforms. I think you deserve it.